Baptist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. I love that Elizabeth talked about uh, story and how God is revealed in story and how we can share that story. Um, the, the great three monotheistic religions are, are all religions of stories. And if you look at the Hebrew scriptures in our New Testament and at the Quran, uh, we, there's a lot of stories that are very similar. Uh, um, a lot of the same characters, a lot of same settings, a lot of uh, intersection. But one major difference is uh, in our Christian tradition and in Judaism, you hear, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, our, our brothers and sisters who practice Islam uh, trace their lineage to Ishmael instead of Isaac. And as Jim invites us into the story of uh, coexisting with Islam today, we want to read the story of the birth of Ishmael. So hear these words from Genesis chapter 16. Abraham replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man and untamed as wild as a donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. So she said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Birlachai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kanesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abraham named him Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you again for your presence with us. Lord, you, you know my heart this morning. You know my hesitation today. And so I pray that you would use the humble words of your servant. Help us, Lord, as we explore and engage a a religion that um, we all have some knowledge about, for good and for bad, in such a way that we can listen and we can be, at the end of this morning, more like you. So come, Holy Spirit, and inhabit this time. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the Rock, and the Redeemer, and all God's people who agreed with this said, Amen. Amen. Um, Pastors 
have a lot of different ways in which they develop sermons and, and, and how we worship and where we're going. Um, the pastor, I, I've been asked on multiple occasions by the, charge, by, the, by the annual conference to teach pastors about creating a sermon plan and where we're going. And, and a lot of pastors use the liturgical calendar and the lectionary. They use the, the scriptures that are invited over a three-year period to preach. Uh, I'm not one of those. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I love the lectionary, I use the lectionary every week in my private devotionals, but I don't necessarily preach the lectionary. So what I do is I try and, because you know context is such an important word for me, I try and say, okay, what is it that our congregation, our community needs? Where are we growing and what is it that God would want us to, to learn and stretch in? Sometimes when I do that, um, I'm really excited because I'm gonna, uh, you know, we're going to dive in deep and we're going to... Uh, unearth some fun pieces, and that's going to be great. But sometimes those topics are not things that I'm necessarily excited to. It's not something that I would choose to do on my own, but it's something I think we need to do. Um, this whole sermon series is one of those topics that I'd rather, I'd rather not do. I'd rather do a hundred other things. But I believe that in our culture and in our society, we need to talk about these other religions, and we need to have a little bit more of a Jesus-style approach to them, rather than confusion or just straight-out ignorance. And so we're taking time to look at this. Now, I will say of all of the religions that we're going to look at today is the one that I'm least excited to preach about. Um, I, I think there's something about this that, uh, that's a real struggle. The, the reality is, is every one of us could go home and get on the History Channel or TLC or whatever, and we could learn all the information that I'm going to share with you over the next couple weeks on these religions by watching a documentary. Um, it's easier for this kind of a sermon series and this kind of topic, particularly today, to be nothing really much more than just an information dump. A bunch of stuff that I'm going to download to you that you're going to take out of here. And that's a real dangerous thing for us as the body of Christ. Because in an information dump, there's usually very little transformation. And the thing is, is as followers of Jesus, we are a transformed people. We are a people being transformed day in and day out hopefully more into the image of Christ. And we need to be able to do something with information, not just hold on to it and go, oh, that was nice. There's a meaning for that. I, I, again, I don't, one of my pastor friends told me this week, he called me or texted me and he said, you know, Jim, I'm not feeling really good. And I'm wondering, do you think it's okay to do a hymn sing in my church this week? And I said, I've been thinking about it for a year when God first laid this Sunday on my heart. I'd much rather do a hymn sing today. Problem, though, with today is that today's religion is way too charged. Our discussions and conversation. This, this, this religion today, Islam, is a religion with all kinds of publicity that everybody has a story or an opinion on. And so I don't want to do it. <laughs> but here we are. It's important and it's necessary. For the longest time, Islam was uh, but a blip on our national conscience. Just a boop, there it is in the radar. In 1978, some of you probably remember a revolution that happened in Iran. The guy by the name of the Ayatollah, remember this? And all of a sudden, Islam was something that Americans needed to be aware of. Then in 1981, we watched as President Answar Sadat was assassinated by fellow Muslims in Egypt. And we went, what's going on over there? 
And in 1991, America stepped into it when the leader of Iraq decided to invade the small country of Kuwait. And we said, wait a minute, what's going on? And then, of course, in 2001, the world stopped when planes flew into three buildings in our country. And since that time, Islam has never stopped being a topic of conversation in this country. Depending on who you talk to, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Its worshipers can be found in every corner of the globe. If you watch television, you're going to see a lot of confusing portrayals of Islam on crime shows like NCIS and, and the FBI and those kind of things. Muslims are usually the bad guys and they have hate in their eyes. Um, in sitcoms, uh, most Muslims are found to be uh, non-religious and secular. On news agencies, Muslims are often seen as leaders in uh, uh, just about every branch of government in our country. And the language that's used on most of those, those channels is one that's, well, Islam is really about, a, it's a really a peaceful religion. Well, any thinking person would hear that and see the differences in our experiences and they say, which one is it? Is it a peaceful religion? Is it a religion that inspires its adherents to get on planes and fly into towers and to behead Christians in Cairo and that kind of... Is, it, is Islam a militaristic religion that's bent out on wiping America and the Jews and Christianity? Or is it this peace-seeking religion that seeks coexistence? Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm not going to give you all the answers. It's very freeing for me. I want to encourage you when you leave here to take what we've talked about, to explore it, to learn, to stretch, invite you to discuss more, hopefully adopt some practices even that will deepen your faith story. I do not claim to be an expert on Islam, far from it, but we as Christians have much to learn from our monotheistic Islamic cousins. Particularly, we could learn a great deal about three things. Our approach to self-sufficiency, prayer, and a commitment to holiness. Now, if those three things sound familiar, it should, because those are all spiritual disciplines and practices for us as Christians. They're all areas that we are, as Christians, called to deepen. To depend on self is as foreign in Islam as is bacon. To pray is to be a Muslim. To be devoted to a different kind of life, whether good or bad, is the end goal. That's the point. I think all of us can go, except the bacon part, right? <laughs> Come on, really? <laughs> We're looking at all of these religions over this series in four ways. We're uncovering a problem that everyone seems to be saying we need to do something, then a solution and a way forward, and then an exemplar, someone who best showed the way to, to the solution. And in Islam, <clears throat> all four of these areas can be traced back to the founder, Islam's founder, a man whose name is repeated multiple times by millions of Earth's inhabitants each and every day. His name is Muhammad. Muhammad was born 500 years after the rise of Christianity and was raised by an uncle after his parents both died unexpectedly. His clan, the Hashim clan, was a very small uh, clan uh, of his, his family group uh, in, in, in the Middle East, really the far, more east than middle, but east. 
Um, at an early age, Muhammad earned the nickname El Amin, which means the trustworthy one. Now, I've got a lot of nicknames. I don't think any of them are the trustworthy one. <laughs> Though someone questioned my credibility in a Facebook post this week, but I will leave that alone. His integrity as a trick. I posted a picture and it looked really funny, okay? Muhammad's integrity as a traitor was something that the rest of the people around him said, wow, this guy's something. Now remember, Muhammad was poor. He's very poor. His reputation in this birth city of Mecca was so great that by the, his early 20s, an older widow sought him out and said, marry me. Marry me and I can take your reputation and give you wealth and we can do really great things. Muhammad married this woman, and their, this marriage elevated his standing and his wealth overnight. And the, the, the next several years, the 15 or so years after that marriage, um, Muhammad went about his life as, as any normal person in his community. In this little village of Mecca, it was known as a traveling worship spot where traders would come and they would, they would share information, they would sell, they would be about life together. And in the middle of Mecca, there was this stone that was erected that they, the tradition said by all of the gods, the pagan gods, that a meteor had fallen from the sky. That it was a gift from the gods and there they would walk around this, this focal point called the Kaaba. They would circumambulate, is the word, around it multiple times, praying and worshiping, and all the various deities would be uh, experienced and invited to be worshipped. Now, Muhammad was enough of an introvert that the noise of all of this pagan worship really bugged him. So he started a yearly pilgrimage that took place every year, once a month, where he would go out into the wilderness and he would meditate. Now, according to, to Muslim history and theology, it was during one of these visits that the archangel Gabriel visited him and began to share with Muhammad revelations about God that promised, uh, that, that, that said, hey, there's a problem that exists in the world. Now, we said last week that the Jewish problem um, is, is a broken relationship with God. Um, and, and the Christian understanding, there is a, that problem is sin. In Islam, the problem isn't sin, yet it is this idea that we, as God's creations, have forgotten God. We have become self-sufficient. We can do it on our own. And so this first message of Gabriel to Muhammad was that God was saying, there is only one God and you will be my prophet. This was a direct conflict to the pagan gods of Mecca. Caused quite a problem. God, or Allah in Arabic, that is the Arabic word for God. It is not a personal name like Yahweh or Jehovah or Jesus. It is the the name, it is the word God. So when a Christian in Palestine prays to God, they pray to Allah. That is the Arabic name. When a Jew who speaks Arabic prays to God, they pray to Allah. It is a, just a gen, general generic name. So Allah, God, is upset that humanity had forgotten him, the problem. And so they have to to create all of these gods to make up or make sense. And so the solution for Allah 
the solution for Muhammad, the message that was being given to him by this archangel Gabriel, was that the people should submit and live accordingly. The word Islam is the Arabic word to submit. So the solution to our forgetting God is to submit and remember who God is. Are we tracking? Nod your heads. One way or the other, okay? At first, the people of Mecca just ignored Muhammad and this message of one God. And as Muhammad's visions from the archangel Gabriel continued, the resistance grew. Muhammad's followers, initially very small, really just his family, um, and their message became so offensive and so intense to the city officials that their financial persecution began. And for three years, Muhammad and his small group of Muslims endured this. Remember, Muhammad grew up poor, so financial distress, no big deal. He'll figure it out. But when his wife and his uncle suddenly died, Muhammad had to flee his hometown, his protection gone, and he had to find refuge with a group of people in a city that would eventually be called Medina. Now, Medina... They welcomed Muhammad. They welcomed his story. They welcomed this revelation that there is only one God. It was far less confusing, far easier to grab and to know which God do I have to pray to today. Um, they embraced this message of Allah through this prophet, and it was in Medina where the religious life of Islam really began to take place. The pillars of Islam began to start to form. Um, to be a Muslim in Medina was to submit, to acknowledge that Allah was God and that Muhammad was his prophet, and prayer there became a real central point. That poverty thing that Muhammad grew up in started to factor in too because every Muslim is, is, is required to give 2% of everything they own to the poor. Not to the, the local place of worship, but to the poor directly. Now, since that time, denominations have come up and some of that poor goes directly to the poor and some goes to the imam or the pastor to be distributed to the poor. The point being, 2% of everything you have immediately is given away. The spiritual aspects of Islam continued to deepen as more visions were given to Muhammad by this archangel um, uh, Gabriel. He, though he had left Mecca in 622, the, the, the two communities, though divided by 200 plus uh, miles, uh, continued to be at odds with each other. So much so that wars and open hostilities began to break out. Violence gave way to aggression the people called Muslims had to do something to save their lives and their own city. And by 630, uh, these two areas were in direct conflict. Towards the middle to end of 630, Muhammad once again, once disgraced and made to, to flee in the cover of night, his city of Mecca came and captured it and cleansed it from all of its pagan gods. Cleansing the Kaaba inviting the people to realize that this was a place that Abraham had erected. That it was a place that you could still circumambulate and be close to God's presence. Muhammad continued to have visions from Allah through Gabriel, continued to write down those words, and it needs to be stressed that these were not the words of the prophet. They were not Muhammad's words. They were Allah's words. The collection of writings that was then compiled is called the Quran. Have you heard that before? 
The Quran is not much bigger than our New Testament. It is made up of sections of chapters called surahs, and it is not laid out chronologically. You don't go from beginning to end. Instead, it is set up from shorter to longer, with the exception of the first surah, which is kind of medium because it sets the standard. But every other surah goes from shorter to longer. In, in the Quran, Jesus and Abraham and a lot of the patriarchs of our faith tradition, are, their stories are told. The one difference in the surahs is that there is chapter headings for which ones occurred in Medina, early on, and which ones occurred in Mecca later on. The writings from the time in Medina are much more spiritual, they're much more reflective, while the longer writings from Mecca are more political, they're more legal. It should be restated that the words of the Quran aren't Muhammad's, they are Allah's. Muhammad had his own interpretations that were recorded, and it's those interpretations that have been handed down that, that really give rise to a lot of the confusion that we see in Islam today. Uh, the Quran, those words of Muhammad aren't scripture. The Quran, however, you could say is about the equivalent of the incarnation for us as Christians. Uh, the Quran is the closest thing to God on earth. It is absolute, it is unchanging, and because Arabic is the voice of Allah, it should be spoken out loud in Arabic. American Muslims might have a translation of the Quran, but to pray it, they pray it in Arabic. Within the Quran, Islam has these five foundations or these principles, these pillars that we've already mentioned. We said the confession, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. When a, that is a regular citation, but it is also what converts someone to Islam. Anybody who says that with a heart of intention is now considered a Muslim. In addition, a Muslim is offered to recite prayer five times a day. Now, these are not prayers like, I'm just going to say, God is good, God is great, we're going to go through this, and yay. The recitations are just that. They are recorded. The same five prayers over and over again. Regular fasting is a third pillar, especially during the month of Ramadan, a time where we're invited into a season of purity, where we give up food, sexual expression, a variety of other uh, elements of our life are put to the side so that we can be pure. Almsgiving, uh, as I mentioned earlier, continues to be a huge piece of, or one of these pillars of, of Islam. It is automatic and it is directly given to the poor. And finally, now that doesn't include the money that you give to build your place of worship, to pay your iman, your pastor, whatever. That's secondary. Finally, there is a pilgrimage that every Muslim should take at least once in their life to Mecca, to the purified Kaaba stone, and circumambulate, walk around it, and pray. These five areas makes a completed Muslim. This is how you know you have made it and you are on your way. These five, again, this, this interpretation of these five pillars is what causes so much confusion. For instance, the Quran takes part of something called abrogation. Have anybody ever heard of this word? Abrogation means later surahs can, be, can replace earlier ones as authoritative. So if uh, Muhammad brings a surah early on in his life and says, here it is, but then 10 years later brings another one, it, it, it abrogates, it, it replaces the earlier even though it's still part of the Quran. 
So you have these collections. In early sections of the Quran, the Quran says that Christians and Jews are to be honored because of a shared history, that we are collectively called the people of the book. But as Islam grew and its political campaigns grew, and as the, the headquarters moved from Medina to Mecca, disagreements rose between the three groups, and non-converts to Islam, non-people who would not submit to Allah and Muhammad as his prophet, were considered infidels and often worthy of death. Early recordings and early interpretations of Muhammad are written from a very peaceful place. Islam uh, may mean submit, but it comes from the root word peace, salam. An Islamic or an Arabic person will greet each other, salam alaikum, alaikum. malaikum as-salam. Um, later selections, while they earlier sections were peace, later selections are much more violent. Many of them make our Hebrew imprecatory psalms really mild. And the Christian warnings of intermarriage in the New Testament, oh, those look almost boring compared to the regulations. And this is where we have to speak of the differences. Because Islam is not just a spiritual uh, uh, journey, it is a journey that incorporates every aspect of your life. So the later sections of the Quran have to deal about politics and how law is to be done and how you're supposed to prepare your house and how you are to marry and how you are to do uh, any number of things in life. There's no real questions there. The differences continue as well in that Muhammad's revelation by the archangel Gabriel informed him that the Jewish and the Christian scriptures were misrepresentations of the great prophets. So in other words, Abraham's chosen family, as we heard uh, Chad read for us earlier, wasn't Isaac, but Ishmael. David was a king of Israel, but he was Arabic and he was misrepresented in the Hebrew scriptures and misrepresented Allah. Jesus was a prophet, but he was not a Messiah. He certainly wasn't the Son of God. He was so holy that God would never allow him to be crucified. Therefore, we never need the resurrection. These are all inventions by later usurpers of Allah's message. And the Quran then becomes the final word on all things. So arguing about any of these pieces from history is just a mark of your refusing to submit. Again, tracking. <clears throat> now, this is no surprise, but theologically I have to reject these things. But I will tell you, historically, I reject these claims from Islam as well. Islam's claim about Jesus in, in several areas just don't hold up under historical scrutiny. There is much that remains a mystery about Christianity, but abrogation isn't one of them. Context is the study of the Christian Bible is absolutely necessary, or we get readings that say women are to be completely submissive to men, which is a gross misrepresentation of Paul. Amen, ladies? Amen. Come on, am I the only one? Really? But context in Islam is impossible to trace with abrogation and with stories that aren't chronological. The Quran speaks of equality for certain. And progressive Muslims will say that uh, there is great equality between men and women. But Muhammad was a polygamist who encouraged the beating of your wife if they did something as small as burn your meal. Or wives, should add. Islamic passages call for peace and for holy war wars that invite the slaying of all those who don't submit. Christians have used just war language for years, but the teachings of Jesus, oh, y'all listen really clearly, the teachings of Jesus remain the same. 
turn the cheek, right? Nod, follower of Jesus. Turn the cheek, peace. Both have been used to bring untold terror on the world, but Jesus never raised a sword. You will never find a picture. And please, don't ever wear a t-shirt with Jesus and a gun in my presence. Because that's not who it is. You won't see that. The Quran says killing someone for their religion is a way direct to hell, but it also calls for holy wars against the infidels. Which one is it? Suicide bombing is bad, and yet we have seen it as a great way directly to paradise. Islam also sees that religion cannot be separated, as I said earlier, from religious life. Compartmentalizing is a foreign concept, one that we would do well to remember. In other words, what happens at church happens everywhere for a Muslim. I know a lot of Christians who say, I'm going to go and be Jesus right here and then go live every, however I want to the rest of the week. Doesn't happen in Islam. Again, maybe something we should consider. The prayer life of a Muslim is done with deep faithfulness. Recited, yes. But it's so much more than just grace over meal, if we remember. Could that be said of us? Again, we have much to learn from Islam. I've done all I can to present a fair description of Islam. I'm sure there are folks in this room who will disagree with me on either side. That's okay. I'm not an expert. I claim that from the very beginning. I'm a Christian who loves the study of history and who appreciates the commonalities that we have with those that we differ from. Muslims have as many denominations as Christians do. Differences interpreting the, interpreting the Quran and the teachings of Muhammad are as numerous as anything. But the faithfulness of Muslims is something that can't be questioned. I wonder, I wonder what would a Muslim say about our commitment to God and our traditions? As I told you, it's not just an info dump. We're not here just to learn about this, this, and this so that we can leave and have some bullet points to have in a future argument. No, 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 no. Would a Muslim who knows you, would a follower of Islam find you confusing or faithful? Would they disagree with you? Probably. But would they be able to respect that not only have we thought it through, but we are so convinced that we're living it, that we're not compartmentalizing on a Sunday morning? Would they see in our life a life of prayer, the same kind of call that Jesus called us to? Would they see in us the, the desire to, to feed the hungry and clothe the naked? Would they see in us a, 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 a unity that is around the table that, that circumambulates or circumvents all of our divisions? There is much that we can learn from Islam. There is much that we can disagree with. If we're followers of Jesus, much that we have to disagree with. But what can we learn from them at the same time? I said last week that coexistence and tolerance for the Christian, that's just the beginning. It's really, to a degree, a lazy way out. We are as called by Jesus to a compassion and a love that extends beyond all of that. What can we learn from these people, these people of the book? Where can we be challenged and how can we deepen? Would you pray with me? 
God, again, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to explore. Lord, um, I beg your forgiveness for those places where I have misrepresented or spoken in a way that wasn't authentic, and I pray, God, that you would um, open our eyes to, to explore and to see and to, and to learn more. But I do pray, Lord, that through this, that you would help us to be more like you, that you would see this call to prayer is not just for our, um, Muslims, but it is for us as followers of Jesus, that a coming together to celebrate really matters, that a, that a giving and, and taking care of the poor is something we're all called to do. Lord, I, I pray that we wouldn't be bought into the lies of media, but that we would explore and that we would invest and we would engage. And most importantly, we would share your love. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be more like you. We ask this in your precious name. To the all-powerful Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for it is in this that we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Amen.